2 Peter chapter 3. And if you want to follow along with us, that is page 1019 in your pew Bible. 1019, 2 Peter chapter 3. It's right before 1 John. After 1 Peter. Which is after James. You find it? Page 1019. Stand with me as we read God's word. We honor the reading of God's word here at Del Cerro. The Apostle Peter says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which... The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is God's word. Praise God. You may be seated. Let's ask him for instruction as we listen to him today. Lord, we, we see this text and we see right off the bat some of the very doubts that some of us have this morning. It's been so long since you promised your coming, and yet you haven't returned. Some of us are hurting as we wait. Some of us have suffered injustice as we wait. And because of these things, Lord, some of us are doubting. I ask you, Lord, this morning that as we look to your word, that you would give us encouragement, that you would build us up, that you would restore our faith where it's wavering, and that our confidence would be in your good, holy, righteous character. 
would speak to us this morning from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus is coming back. Do you believe that? Do you really believe it? Or do you just say it? Is there, is there anything you can point to in your life as evidence that your faith, your hope is in the return of Christ? Would someone looking at your life be able to say that your heart is oriented toward the future? Seems to be Peter's goal for us in our text this morning. That we would have hearts that are not set on this world, but on the return of Christ, our blessed hope. But before we address that, you all answered, yes, Jesus is coming back. But before we get to 2 Peter 3, I want to show you first, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Maybe you said that with a shaky unsteadiness. I want to show you that Scripture teaches clearly Jesus is coming back. Not spiritually, but actually, physically. Jesus really is returning. As a church, we've, we've been talking about the presence of God over these last five weeks of, of Advent, from his, his presence in the Old Testament to the person of Christ, the work of Christ, to the person of the Holy Spirit, and now we look forward to Christ's return. But the Spirit, as we saw last week, He holds us, He secures us, He seals us, He marks us out as belonging to God until Christ's return. And at the return of Christ, the presence of God with us is going to expand from the Holy Spirit's presence with the church to all of creation. Because everything is going to be made new. The heavens will be made new. The earth will be recreated into a dwelling place for King Jesus. That's what we look forward to. And I'm going to show you some scriptures that teach us that. All right? You might remember the, the first one, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. We looked, we glimpsed at this passage last week, only to show that Jesus Christ had left. But look what it says about his return. Acts 1, 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. That's what we looked at last week. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. He will come. Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go. He physically ascended into heaven. He physically will descend from heaven. And nearly every New Testament book attests to this reality. In the Gospels, Jesus talks about the Son of Man coming in His glory, Matthew chapter 25. And when He says that, He's not talking about the cross, He's not talking about the resurrection, He's talking about His return. Christ will return. In Paul's epistles, we see this all over the place, He tells the church in Thessalonica, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. He will descend. He tells the church in Crete. He says to Titus there in the church of Crete, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To the church in Philippi, in Philippians 3.20, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And at the end of his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul says, kind of in a prayer, sort of in an anticipatory just exhortation, he says, our Lord, come. He's, he's calling out for Christ's return because he knows Christ is returning. The, the writer to the Hebrews gives us this Advent-rich text in, in Hebrews 9.28. He says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, this is first coming, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. James says the judge is standing at the door, and he's talking about the return of Christ. The judge is at the door. John, writing to the churches in what is now Turkey, says, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, you see the anticipation there? When he appears, we're waiting for his appearance. When he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Jude says to live in waiting for the mercy of Christ. Live in waiting for the mercy of Christ. He's talking about Christ's return. That's what we sang about. Come thou fount of every blessing. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord, Jesus Christ, that leads to eternal life. That, that mercy is his return. Of course, Revelation is all about Christ's kingship and his return, isn't it? In Revelation 14, he's the son of man with a sickle ready for judgment. In Revelation 19, he's the warrior king who comes riding on the white horse. In Revelation 21, he's the fulfillment of that passage that Rod read for us. The fulfillment of Isaiah 65. He's the bringer of that. The new creation where he will dwell with us forever. Let me read for you Revelation 21. We can't talk about Christ's return without reading Revelation 21. Just the first five verses will, will, will be enough to whet our appetite. John the Revelator writes this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven and from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The consistent testimony of the New Testament, of all the Bible, really, is that Jesus Christ is returning. And, and with him, he will bring our ultimate redemption, our ultimate salvation. It's a, it's a redemption from bodies that are prone to corruption and sin and sickness and death and a redemption to glorified heaven-made bodies. It's undeniable, it's irrefutable in Scripture. 
we can have absolute confidence in this truth because it is the promise from Jesus himself. But he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. Jesus said that. So we can trust it. He doesn't lie. He is returning for his glory. And that's that's what Advent season is all about. When when the early church, Christmas hasn't always been celebrated, but when the early church began to celebrate Christmas, when it began to put on the calendar an Advent season, this yearly celebration of the incarnation, the first coming of Christ, they always did that anticipating his second coming. There was this sense where Christians would say, God has been faithful to send his son as he promised. God will be faithful to send him back. That's what Advent is, anticipating the advent of Christ, the return of Christ. So when we sing joy to the Lord, the Lord is come, that's not just a first Christmas song. That's in always looking forward to the next Christmas, always looking forward to the advent, the return of Christ song. That's why we sang it today. We, I mean, think about the lyrics to the song. We can't honestly say sins and sorrows don't grow right now. Maybe in us, the power of sin has been defeated, but turn on the news. We see sin and sorrow here. We see sin and sorrow throughout the rest of our state, throughout the rest of our country, throughout the rest of the world. And we can't say that thorns don't infest the ground, can we? Not yet. We have Roundup, but that's just trading weeds for cancer, isn't it? We can't say he has come to make his, flow, his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Not completely. Not yet. We hope for that, though. That's what that song's about. That's what Advent is about. We hope for that time. We look forward to that undoing of the curse. It's begun. It began with the first Advent, but it is consummated. It's completed at the second. And we sing that song because every Christmas is a reminder of God's past and future faithfulness. God was faithful to his promise. He will be faithful to his promise. And it is that will be faithful, it is that second advent that is the foundation upon which Peter writes this second letter of his. Second Peter, if you you read the whole thing, it's short. I would encourage you to do that this evening. But you you see that, that the second coming of Christ is the foundation upon which Peter gives us these encouragements. It's what he's He's talking to these churches about. 2 Peter 3 answers that that so what question about Christ's return. Peter tells us what our lives should look like in light of the reality of the coming of Christ. So turn your attention now to 2 Peter 3, the text that we read this morning. If you've closed your Bible, open it back up. Remember, it's page 1019 in the Pew Bible. And just follow along with us. We're just going to go verse by verse. Verse 1 to verse 13. All right. Well, it seems that in, in these churches that Peter is writing to, the ones that have received this letter from Peter, that some in the churches are doubting Christ's return. What we see so clearly in Scripture, some are doubting, and they've, they've, been, they've begun to cause others in the church to doubt as well and, and really to falter in their faith. 
And so here at the beginning of our text, Peter does a couple things to encourage the church. He first says, I'm writing to you as a reminder. You see that in verse 1? In other words, what I'm telling you isn't new. Like, we've been talking about these things for a long time, and I'm writing you gently to remind you Jesus is returning. We all need that reminder, don't we? We have to be reminded every day. I have to be reminded every day. Jesus Christ is coming back. In this particular church, and I believe our church also, they need a reminder. This church, though, the church that Peter's writing to, they need the reminder because some are actually denying the reality of Christ's return. They're denying the return of Christ. And so to to address this, Peter says first, well, we knew this would happen. And then secondly, he goes on the offensive against those false teachers. So let's look at first that we knew this would happen part. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says the holy prophets, and by that he means the Old Testament prophets, and the Lord and Savior through your apostles predicted scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. It's what scoffers do. They scoff. And the Bible teaches in the Old Testament and the New Testament that these scoffers will be here. Shouldn't surprise anybody. I want you to to notice something, though. The way, you you might miss it if if you're not looking carefully. I want you to notice how Peter talks about these apostles. He says, the Lord and Savior speaks through them. Did you see that in verse 2? Lord and Savior speaks through the apostles. That's why what the apostles have written down for us is considered scripture. It's from the Lord. The Lord is speaking through them. So if, you, if we were to be genuinely to have a red letter Bible, the entire New Testament would all be red letters. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking through the apostles. You don't miss those little nuggets of precious truth. That means you can trust Peter's letters, and you can trust Paul's letters, and you can trust the Gospels in their entirety, not just the quotes where Jesus is clearly speaking. Jesus speaks through his apostles. But the point here is that no one should be surprised that there are these cynical naysayers de- denying the return of Christ. The Lord said they would come, and so basically Peter's saying to the church, don't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised. Don't let that lead you to, to, to lose faith. In fact, it should increase your faith because Jesus predicted they would be here, and here they are. And what does that do? That, that further reinforces that Jesus was telling the truth in all that he said. He even tells us what the motivation of the scoffers is. Did you, did you see that? Look carefully at verse 3. He says, The scoffers come following their sinful desires. More often than not, the motivation for scoffing, and, and that's just not really a modern English word, is it? It's doubting, it's, it's saying, it's making accusations against those who believe in something. It's, they're mocking, is another way to put it. The motivation for this false teaching is not so much a sincere desire to seek truth in Scripture. That's not what they're doing. But but these guys want to use Scripture to justify sin. So so think think of a husband who is sinfully controlling his wife. He's rageful, he's violent, he yells and screams all the time. 
he might look to Scripture to try and justify his sin. He may say, look, the Bible says you have to submit to me. And so then he justifies his sin in that. A young man or woman caught up in lust may look to the Scriptures to try and prove there's nothing wrong with pornography since that word's not in the Bible. A man wanting to have multiple wives could make that case from Scripture, couldn't he? He would twist Scripture. Someone struggling with homosexuality may may wave their hand over the Scriptures in Jedi-like fashion and say, it's not in here. At least that's not the way I understand it, and so I read it my own way. That's, but what's the motivation in each of those? It's not a genuine desire to seek truth in God's word. That's not the desire. The desire is to use God's word to justify a sinful lifestyle. The point here is that the false teaching doesn't begin with this desire for the truth. It, begins with the, it doesn't begin with a desire to know God. It doesn't begin with a desire to submit ourselves to Him and hear from Him. It begins with a desire to sin. And that is the root of all twisting of Scripture. So, so church, when you come to the Scriptures, listen. Come with a humble heart. Come with a submissive heart. Come to the Bible ready and willing to be corrected, instructed, changed, built up. Come ready to worship. Whenever you open God's word, if you go to God's word to prove something, that's your aim. I want to prove such and such. You will sinfully twist and manipulate it and you will lead yourself astray and you will lead others astray. Notice notice what these scoffers in particular are saying here in verse 4. Look at verse 4. They're saying basically Jesus can't possibly be returning. And by this, I I think they're most concerned with the judgment aspect of Jesus' return. They don't want Jesus to come back because when he comes back, he brings judgment. So they're saying he's not coming back. It's not going to happen. Why? Well, because everything is as it always has been. Everything is continuing as it has since our fathers. I mean, it's a very subjective argument, isn't it? This is similar to the argument against miracles that you might hear. There's no such thing as miracles because I've never seen one. Or, or there's no such thing as miracles because miracles are impossible. Right? It's either subjective or it's circular, but either way, it's a fallacy. And so what Peter wants to do is shut down the fallacy. Look at what he says in verses 5 and 6. Six, He says, they're forgetting something. God is active. God is active. He's always been active. And in particular, he was active in Genesis chapter 6. And he says, these guys, the scoffers, deliberately overlook this fact. So what you, you get the sense that they're using Scripture and just maybe they've ripped out Genesis chapter 6 and 7. They've ripped out the flood stuff because they don't want to think about God's judgment. They're teaching around it and leading people astray. But Peter remembers it, and Peter is reminding this church, you also remember this, don't you? By the word of God, 
And the water that God made the world from, God judged the world in the flood. There was a flood. It was real. And these scoffers, these false teachers are forgetting that. Peter's point is that God has entered into space and time to bring judgment before. Things are not as they always have been. Things have changed dramatically in the past, and they will again. He says in verse 7, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It's happened before. It will happen again. You hear the confidence in Peter's voice in this text? He's pointing back to history, known history, accepted Bible history, things that the people in the church would, would, would know about. He's pointing back and he's saying, these people who think that things have always been the same are forgetting about this reality that God is just and God sends judgment. But from responding to, to the scoffers, Peter then goes into teaching mode. And it's, it's one of the things that, that we strive for here is, is we don't just want to talk about them out there. Right? That doesn't do us any good. Paul, P- Peter, Peter's goal here is to instruct the church that, that is hearing him, the people that will listen to him. So he goes into teaching mode and he's going to be there from 8 through 13. He, he, he reminds the church with the Lord, in verse 8, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So what, what's he saying to them? He's saying God doesn't experience time. He's not subject to time. God created time. When one day flies by for you and me, and we look back on that day, and all we have to show for it is some questionable Facebook posts and some some regrettable orders from Amazon. When, when, we, when we can never seem to accomplish anything with the 24 hours that we're given, God is so outside of that constraint that, that he sees those 24 hours not as binding, but as inconceivably long. For God, one day is, is like an eternity. It's like time has stopped. See, 1,000 in Bible language, is often the stand-in for very large number. Okay, so, so where we might say a billion, trillion, zillion, Google, the, the Holy Spirit elegantly and simply says, 1,000 will do. It's, it's the very large number. The implication is that something that would take us thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years to accomplish, God can accomplish in an instant. One day is like a thousand years. He's not bound by the laws of nature that binds you and me. He's outside of time. And in the same way, Peter says, a thousand years to us is like a day to God. So all of humanity, from Adam to you and me, all the thousands of years that have passed since that first man was brought up from the earth to now, to God, it's as if no time has passed at all. He sees all of time at once. So the point that Peter's getting at here is that God has not been getting old and fat and gray binge-watching Netflix while we Christians have been waiting and waiting and waiting 1,986 years. 
in, in God time, Jesus Christ just ascended. He, he, he's only been there for a, for a whisker of a second. So Peter's saying God's not being slow. So, so the church who's thinking, the scoffers are saying Jesus isn't coming back. The church is getting doubtful and saying, yeah, he really has taken a long time. And really, it's only been like 10 years for them. And they're like, this is a long time. And we're like, no, this is really a long time. God is saying, or Peter's saying here, God's not being slow as some count slowness. And he, who's he talking about in verse 9? You, me. God's not slow as some count slowness. He's not being slow. Look what he says. He's being patient. The Lord is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's saying, don't be so quick to count what you perceive as some sort of delay in Christ's return as the Lord's tardiness or as as his laziness or as his forgetfulness or as his unfaithfulness. He's none of those things. What is the Lord? He is patient. Jesus Christ has not returned. Because he is patient. And what is he being patient for? What is he waiting for? Repentance. Look at verse 9. That we should reach repentance. So, So listen, what the scoffers are mocking as the Lord's slowness. And what some in the church are tempted to see as his unfaithfulness, it's actually quite the opposite, isn't it? It is his faithful, patient mercy toward them. The Lord is patient. He is not slow. He is patient. Then look at what Peter says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see what Peter's telling this church? Remember the you is the church, the all and any, it's the people in the church. He's saying, church, there are some of you who have been so influenced by the naysayers that your focus has become temporal. Your gaze has fallen. You're hoping in things that are earthly because you lost sight of the eternal. And hoping in earthly things, putting your hope in today, in this life, in money, in possessions, in vacations, in parties, in family, in careers, putting your hope in these temporal things has led you into a life that's not characterized by godliness and holiness, but sin. Because a life whose horizon is earthly is a life that is characterized by sin. So what is Peter telling the church? He's saying, the Lord's being patient with you. He's giving you time to repent. Then look at verse 10. Kind of changes from the Lord's slow, not slow, but, but patient waiting to the return of Christ. While the Lord is patient, His patience is not unending. The day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief, he says in verse 10. And by that he means unexpectedly. It doesn't mean that 
God is a thief. But he comes unexpectedly. A thief does not announce his coming. That means there are not Kevin McAllister pastors and theologians who have been cued in to when the wet bandits are coming, right? The second coming, that's a Home Alone reference, old people. The, The second coming is not like the coming of a baby that you have nine months to prepare for and you know roughly its due date. It's like the coming of a thief. It means you're going to be caught off guard. You don't know when he's coming, so you must always be prepared. Christ will return unexpectedly. And with him the day of the Lord and judgment and the new creation. Look at the rest of verse 10. It will will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's what's coming. He's said it once or twice already. And because of this, because of that reality, because Jesus is returning with judgment in the new creation, well then, verse 11. And in, in verse 11, I read it wrong earlier because it's not a question. Verse 11 isn't a question. It's an exclamation. It's exhortation. He's saying, what sort of people ought you to be? Jesus is coming back. What sort of people ought you to be? It's an, it's an exclamation. You're to be living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. So we, we don't wait for the day of the Lord by drawing charts and diagrams and with our calculators trying to guess what you're coming back. We don't read the newspaper and say, well, if this is happening in Iran and if this is happening in Russia and if this is happening in Italy and if this guy gets elected president here, well, then Jesus is going to come back in this year and so on. That's not how we wait. That's not how we are to wait. Look at, just look at the evidence of history of people that have waited in that way. That's how cults get started, isn't it? That's not how we wait. How do we wait? What does Peter say? What sort of people ought we to be? A people constantly speculating about the end times. No, we're to be holy people. Holy people. Do you see what he's saying? You, sh- you should be looking forward to Christ's return with hope and expectation and because you're looking forward to Christ's return because that's where your hope is your lives should be marked by that hope and what does that look like holiness and godliness holiness and godliness if you're wondering well, what does he mean by holiness does he mean like don't square dance no he's saying look look back at chapter 1 this is this is how he started the letter we just jumped in to chapter 3 chapter 1 Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, that's where it all begins, with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. That's holiness. Holiness in a Christian begins with faith. It all begins with faith. We're saved by faith. But then added to that, is the life that comes afterwards, the life of virtue, knowledge of the Lord, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, love for other Christians. 
Those are the positive marks of holiness. Elsewhere in the New Testament, you'll find the lists of things holy people avoid. Right? The, the, the New Testament is filled with these. But more often than not, you will see the lists of things that describe the holy people. Right? If we are following that list of things that describe holy people, if we are seeking the fruit of the Spirit, if we are living lives of virtue and knowledge and self-control and so forth, if we're truly loving the church, we won't really have time for that list of things to avoid. Things like gossip, things like drunkenness and coarse joking and sexual immorality and greed. Those things, won't, they won't even be on our radar because our pursuit, our sight, is on Christ's return. And our desires will be for his return. We're to be so looking forward to Christ's return that our lives look different than the world. So different, so set apart, that when the world sees us, even though they hate us, they glorify God. Jesus taught us that in Matthew 5. Do you remember that? Salt and light, so that our good works would lead others to glorify God. Peter repeats Jesus' teaching in his first letter, 1 Peter 2.12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Well, do you know what motivates us to live this way? I mean, aside from, yes, Jesus told us to live this way. And aside from knowing that this will lead others to him. And aside from the fact that living holy lives actually hastens Christ's return. Did you see that in verse 12? It hastens his return. We look forward to and hasten Christ's return by living holy lives. But it's also true that we're motivated to holiness by what Peter tells us in verse 13. We're waiting for the new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. In which righteousness dwells. That's what we're looking forward to. That's our motivation for holiness. We look forward to the new creation because that is the place where righteousness makes sense. It doesn't make sense here. If we're honest with ourselves, righteousness doesn't really make sense in this life. It's not always the reasonable thing to do. Selfishness makes a lot more sense. It's actually more rational to be selfish. Think, why humble yourself and serve others when you could go ahead? Why give? Why give your hard-earned money to the ministries of the church when you can make yourself more comfortable? Maybe you could go out for dinner more. Maybe you could drive a nicer car. Why give to missions? Right, that's absurd. If we're not looking forward to a future creation where all tribes and tongues and nations are gathered around King Jesus singing holy, 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 why bother sending missionaries to places who haven't heard about him? What a waste of time. Why be a missionary at all and leave the comforts of America? Really, why share the gospel at all? If God is not gathering in his sheep before the last day, why tell the truth when you can save face by lying? 
Why bother loving your neighbor when you can just ignore them and ignore the, uh, just avoid the awkwardness altogether? Why love your enemy? Why be patient? Why use self-control? Why not fulfill every desire you have? Because you can. Think about it. If there's no future context where holiness and godliness and righteousness make sense, why bother with those things now? But there is a future context where those things make sense, isn't there? According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So when we practice righteousness now, we're acclimating ourselves to that altitude, aren't we? I don't use sports references very often, so here's your one for six months. Today is the, is the last Sunday of NFL regular season, right? And my family's looking forward to Seahawks game tonight, okay? And there are football players that train and train and train and train all year long for what will happen on game day. But they don't beat their bodies into submission. They don't train just to look good. And they, and they don't do it just to avoid getting hurt. They train for game day. They prepare themselves to endure the game with the hope of reward. They train for the love of the game and the prospect of winning. That's what we're training for. Being called into Christ, being born again into Christ, we train ourselves in godliness and holiness because we're looking forward. We're looking forward to a place where righteousness dwells. Where godliness and holiness are normal and expected. We we won't be weird there for dressing modestly. We won't be weird there for being married for 70 years. We won't be weird there for for simply loving our neighbor. It'll be normal there. And we look forward to that place. And we look forward to that because by the Spirit in us, truly born-again Christians desire Righteousness. We delight in the righteousness that we've been given. Remember, we weren't just saved from sin. We were saved to righteousness and holiness. And those who have been truly born again live in that holiness with joy. We're looking forward more and more because we know ahead of us is the return of our Savior. If, though, if on the other hand, you don't like holiness now, if it's a drag to you, if you think it's just an option for the super religious, you will not like it when Christ returns. If you don't like being around people who are striving for holiness now, you won't like being around them in the new creation. And you certainly will not like being around Jesus. All of this life is a preparation for the new creation. A preparation for the place where righteousness dwells. The connection then is if you honestly can't say, I delight in the Lord and I want him to come back today. 
because I'm so looking forward to eternity with him. If you can't say that, then most likely this holiness stuff is really difficult for you. It's kind of where this all comes together. What sort of people ought you to be if you're looking forward to Christ's return? Holy people. What sort of people will you be if you're not looking forward to Christ's return? A not holy people. This is holiness stuff will be very difficult for you if you're not looking forward to Christ's return. And and it's hard for a lot of us, but I mean even harder for you. Harder than it is for most Christians. Most likely, if, if you're not looking forward to Christ's return, you have a lot of trouble telling the truth. Most likely, you have endless trouble with fear and anxiety. You're probably more stingy than you are generous. You probably compare yourself to others really frequently. You get angry easily. You don't really look forward to being, gathering with the church. Christians annoy you. Preaching annoys you. Prayers seem kind of pointless. And the parts of the Bible you personally disagree with really, really irk you. But here's the thing. This this is where that connection between God's patience and you is. This is the point that Peter wants us to see if there's nothing else we see in this text. God is being patient with you. You, person who doesn't like holiness at all, God is being patient with you. God hasn't returned. Christ hasn't returned because he's waiting for you. God in his patience is waiting to see the fruit of your confession. You say you believe in the death of Christ for our sins. You say we believe in Christ's resurrection. You say we believe he's returning. You say you believe in the power of the Holy Spirit in us to kill the sin that dwells in us. You say you're looking forward to a new creation where righteousness dwells. Where we no longer have to fight sin. We no longer have to feel pain or see death or injustice. But some of us just say those things because that's the Sunday school answer. That's what you're supposed to say. But you have to understand this. If our lives don't show, if our lives don't show that those confessions are true, if our lives don't reflect our faith, well, then God is patiently waiting for our repentance. He's waiting to see the fruit. He's waiting to see the evidence of our faith. But he will not wait forever. So let me close with this. Non-Christian. God is waiting for you to repent and believe. Flaky Christian. Nominal Christian. Christian in name only. God is waiting for you to bear the fruit of what you say you believe. Doubting Christian. What you feel like is a delay in God's patience. Let your faith be restored in the goodness of God. You feel like it's a delay. But it's his patience towards you. So let your faith be restored 
suffering Christian. Jesus is returning. Be steadfast in your hope. Your suffering will come to an end. Striving, Christian. Keep striving. Keep seeking the Lord. Keep growing in Christ. And finally, and I hope this is all of us, praying, Christian. God is being patient toward the ones you're praying for. That's why Christ has not returned. He's being patient with those people that you're praying for. Praise him for his patience and don't ever stop praying for their repentance. Don't ever stop praying for the salvation that he brings. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, our God, we praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you for your patience towards us. I pray that as we we look to your good and perfect character and your holiness, we see your patience. I pray that we would see that as salvation. We would see it as something to, a reason to hope, a reason to repent daily and turn to Christ. In Christ's name, amen.